Hello, and welcome to Research Chatter, a podcast sponsored by the Strategic Management Society, SMS. I'm your co-host, Ronnie Chatterjee from Duke University in North Carolina, and I'm joined, as always, by Charlie Williams from Bocconi University in Milan. Hi, Ronnie. It's great to be here to, uh, to chatter with you, as always. Well, this is our fifth episode of Research Chatter, Charlie, so we're becoming old pros at this. The purpose of this series is to highlight big ideas from business school professors from around the world. And in each episode, we have been focusing on just one topic where B-School researchers are uncovering new insights and trying to translate those findings into ideas that you can take to work in the real world or maybe discuss with your PhD students in that doctoral seminar that you're teaching this year. You know, the podcast has always been an experiment. It's an experiment to try to speed up the translation process, something that both Charlie and I care a lot about, bringing academic ideas into practice. And we've received some great feedback from practitioners, business people, over the last four episodes, which is fantastic. We've also heard from you who are te- uh, some of you who are teaching those doctoral seminars, which maybe these podcasts can be uh, one way to teach students about new research areas. However you use Research Chatter, please continue to send us your feedback and suggestions. We'll do our best to incorporate them into future episodes. So speaking of today's episode, Charlie, what's the topic for today's research chatter? Well, we've picked up on certainly what's another hot topic, both for researchers and for managers, for leaders and executives and and our students, our business students in the field, corporate social responsibility. So really initiatives that try to improve the social impact of business are, are a big concern, both in research and for managers. The big question at the core then is does doing good lead to doing well? And if so, how? It's a topic that really started off towards the edges of management and certainly strategy research, which is so concerned with the bottom line. There was sort of a dismissal of this approach as something that is either not core to the company's business or or doesn't really have a big impact, is more about public relations, but it has decidedly moved to the mainstream of the field. Our students are coming to us much more concerned with it. Business schools are setting up research centers, and a new generation of young scholars is really tackling it with new tools and and some really interesting results. Yeah, you know, Charlie, CSR, as we call it, the acronym, is a really, really broad topic. I mean, to use the parlance of uh, one of the presidential candidates in the U.S., it's a it's a huge topic that has lots of different aspects to it, ranging from companies' activities that impact the natural environment to things like investing in communities, also to relate to areas that there's been a lot of literature on, which is corporate governance. And as you said, you know, while it might have started off as a fringe topic, you see students, you see practitioners, and you see academics increasingly turning this into a core area of interest. So my students come to me and they're not often talking about the bottom line anymore, at least not exclusively. They're really interested in doing good and doing well in their careers and in the companies that they work for. Uh, You know, universities recognize this as a big interest among millennials. They're setting up research centers and getting funding for big companies. And those big companies are establishing positions, as you noted, uh, vice presidents of sustainability, chief sustainability officer. As you see this moving through the corporate world, moving through sort of our classrooms, and also moving through academic circles, uh, a lot of new research is going to come out of this. And I think what's really motivating people is thinking about whether there's a broader purpose for the organization beyond just shareholder maximization. And a lot of people are screaming into their, you know, whatever device they're listening to this on and saying, yes, of course there is. People want this to be the case. People want to see a relationship between doing good and doing well. And that also makes the research here a little more complicated, as we're going to talk about uh, later on. But there certainly is growing interest. Yeah. So, I mean, this has been an issue in the past with with areas like culture and climate of organizations. So there was a lot of discovery that, that, that there was a correlation between 
people being happier at work, happier with their with their company, and that the with higher performance of the company. But with careful look over time, careful examination, it really started to look like at least a significant chunk of that was reverse causality. Some of how successful companies spend their profits is on making it a more pleasant place for people to work there. So, so causality is just a really tricky issue. Yeah, here. you know, Charlie, so you're, what you're saying is those free sodas at those tech companies, it's not really what's making the company more successful. It's a sign that the company <laughs> is successful, which is a different way to think about it. And, you know, I've had this discussion for a long time about correlation and causation in the corporate social responsibility literature. And, you know, as academics, we often hammer home this difference between correlation and causation in talking to our MBA students and, of course, in our PhD students in terms of their research designs. And sometimes it's, you know, relatively academic and someone could come away from those conversations and saying, well, look, does it really matter that much? And I'm going to make a case that it really matters in CSR research. Because if it's the case that the reason we see a correlation between doing good and doing well is because firms that do well financially have money to spend on and publicize on doing good, that's very, very different different than thinking that doing good is actually leading them to doing well. And teasing that out econometrically, Charlie, is a first-order concern. And that's what I think we really need to focus on. So what, so what is this new, new generation of, of scholars doing? So because definitely our toolkit for handling this kind of thing has really come a long way. And we've got some papers today that really uh, take some new steps towards this. So what, what do we find here? Yeah, Charlie, so I think the first way, you know, you think about papers like by Waddock and Graves and others that really set the agenda for thinking about corporate social responsibility. This second wave of CSR research, and, you know, maybe there's other waves that I'm, you know, incorrectly classifying, but what I'm calling the second wave is new work that's really trying to tease out the causal relationship between doing good and doing well, and also looking at the underlying mechanisms. And so today, Today, we're going to highlight work from Caroline Flammer, uh, Vanessa Burbano, Olga Hahn, and Giannis, and others who have really made an impact on, on this area. And I think it's some of the most exciting work going on in CSR. I mean, take Caroline Flammer's uh, management science paper. She has one called, Does CSR Lead to Superior Financial Performance? So she's taking a very old question, which is why I think this paper is pretty exciting. But she's coming up with a new way to answer it, which is part of this new wave. And so what she does is use a pretty clever empirical design. She uses shareholder proposals related to CSR. So when shareholders make these proposals related to things like uh, non-discrimination among employees or environmental performance, what she looks at is as, at those proposals that really pass very narrowly versus the ones that fail very closely. And so you might argue that a proposal that you know passes with 50.1% of the votes is not that much different than the one that goes that fails with 49.9%. And she compares companies on those close votes and finds um, a relationship between the companies that basically pass those shareholder proposals with close votes uh, and increase financial performance, both sort of short-term market returns and also long-term operating performance. And so through that, she's able to establish a link between CSR and financial performance. So that's a pretty cool idea, I think. It's a very cool, it's such a nice, uh, nice structure of the paper. And to see this sharp effect where there was this vote, it came really close to 50% where it would be binding when it falls just short. How do actually investors who knew this vote was about to happen, how do they react? Well, it turns out they punish companies. They, they run down the value of companies that don't pass these CR, CSR initiatives, and they reward the ones that are just above that 50%. And it really looks like those companies aren't terribly different from each other. It really was just small differences in voting. But then in addition, as you say, she goes further and looks at long-term changes, both in operating profits and returns measures, and also in 
external measures of corporate social responsibility. And she sees that all those things, or not all, but in a number of categories, those things move up as well. So she really starts to find a, a, a meaningful effect. Yeah. Here. And, you know, Charlie, as I'm looking at this paper, it's carefully done, really, really nice, um, both in terms of theory and empirics. You know, one thing she says very uh, much up front is that, you know, these CSR proposals that barely pass or barely fail, they aren't necessarily representative. You know, most CSR propo- proposals get very few votes, right? Very low percentage of votes. So the ones that pass do look a little bit different, or the ones, sorry, that are on the mm-hmm. margin look a little bit different than the typical CSR proposal. So she doesn't extrapolate her results to say all kinds of CSR is good for the firm. Also, by the way, these proposals are non-binding, right? So it doesn't mean that these companies necessarily implemented the proposals. And so what you're seeing, at least on the market value, is a response to the mere passage of the CSR proposal, not necessarily the implementation, which occurs with some variability. So I found those things really interesting. These these proposals are very different than average, just because on average, these proposals only get about uh, eight, nine percent support, though she does find over the time of her sample that rises. So in the second part, the, the average support is more 13 or 15 percent. But it turns out you're way out at the tail, the, the positive tail. When you get to 49, 52 percent, that's actually a pretty small number of, of actual proposals. That's right. One, in, one interesting difference she, she points to is these proposals mention the performance of the firm. So these are the ones where they're making a case, and it appears shareholders are really believing them, that making commitment to some external stakeholder group and improving on some, usually labor or environmental dimension, will actually really help this firm. And Charlie, that's where I think it's really interesting. People want to believe that there's a connection between doing good and doing well. Of course, Caroline's work finds this, you know, this market bump of about 1.77%, but people want to believe this is true. And there's this framing kind of element to it as well, that the shareholder proposals, right, the ones that she's looking at, often explicitly connect themselves to the financial performance of the firm. And I think that that's an interesting mm-hmm. question mm-hmm. in terms of looking at future work, in terms of of the framing of these proposals and just framing of CSR initiatives more generally, a whole bunch of work on strategic CSR that Michael Porter and other colleagues have done kind of emphasizes this notion that the best kind of CSR, the most useful kind of CSR is ones that are tied to the company's core strategy. Uh, and I think, you know, what Caroline's seen in the shareholder proposals is sort of a homage to, to that in many ways. The other thing I'd hmm, say is, you know, from a, from a PhD student perspective, you look at this literature and you say, wow, hundreds of studies. This question is so hard to answer. Most advisors would tell you to stay away from this. But what she did is really finds a really interesting empirical design. It's been used in other studies, in fact, ones that look at governance proposals and related phenomenon. And she applies it in this area and is going to get a huge impact from it. So it kind of tells you that looking at well-trodden research questions um, and looking for new ways to attack them can really have a high payoff. The other thing I think, you know, Charlie, though, that bears mentioning, though, is the theoretical mechanisms. Because it's one thing to really, really cleanly identify causal effect. It's another one entirely to think about the mechanisms. And that's would be the other hallmark Why of is this happening? That's right. So what's, what's your take, Charlie? And how, how important under, is it? Under what conditions can we actually see this happening? Right. Right. Well, I, I have a I have a broad take on that. I think we'll come to more at the end, but but I think this is a really good place to transition to Vanessa Burbano's paper because she moves to experiments. So we're no longer in the world of looking at real companies adopting things, We but we are looking at real companies hiring people and sometimes fictitious companies. She does online experiments in freelance markets to see how individuals react to conditions when they're told a little bit more about a company's corporate social mission, corporate social values. And she finds she finds real effects in in how workers react to that knowledge. 
Yeah, it's so cool, Charlie, because I, you know, the way I think these fields move, and we talked about this in our prior podcast, is I think it's a, a set of papers put together. And I can see how you put yes. Vanessa Rubano's paper together with Caroline Flamer's paper. You know, with Caroline's paper, she's thinking a lot about, you know, what the channels might be. And she 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 manages, I think, to sort of, you know, say, look, it could be through labor productivity and show some evidence around that. But you're you're left thinking, okay, you know, can we really nail that channel a little more carefully? And Vanessa's paper really focuses on that explicitly. And she goes to the lab, right? And there's advantages and disadvantages of that, right? And 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 the lab and the field, I should say, because using um, yep. mechanical Turk yep. and and Elance. And what she does is she really tries to think about the provision of CSR information and how that affects maybe you know what per, what salary a person's willing to take and how hard they're going to work at the job, especially on things that are beyond the job description. And she uses these settings, I think, in a really interesting way to find that yes, that you know, providing pretty um, you know boilerplate information, Charlie. When you look at the that the stuff they provide, pretty boilerplate information on the philanthropy po- program really, or CSR. Really and she sees she sees some effects from that. And so, what does that tell you, Charlie? I mean, I you would think that you know real engagement, talking to someone you know deeply about the the philanthropic programs or corporate social responsibility, telling them details, showing them the impact, that would be something that would move the needle. She finds you know pretty generic information does have an effect in her experiment. So, I mean, what does that tell you? No in terms kidding. Of the theory? No kidding. I mean, at the on the front page of this paper, I listed all these reasons just not to expect a result here. So sometimes these online experiments get criticized as not representational. But when you're looking in these markets that are short-term, market relationship for labor, really asking people to do a couple minutes of work, very impersonal. And then it's it's sort of what's sometimes called uh, cheap talk in the sense you're giving them this this one additional sort of 15-second exposure to, oh, and our company, our company donates to a number, of, uh, a number of nonprofits, and we will do that as well. And yet she finds it has a really powerful effect and that uh, it's quite amazing. And I would say the setting actually biases against that. It suggests that when you get to the richness of an actual company, full-time, long-term, uh, long-term commitment between the company and employees, this might have really serious impact on, on how people approach their work. Yeah, I think like when you, I saw Vanessa present this paper a couple times, and at the beginning you start thinking, wow, you know, maybe maybe the setting isn't generalizable, right? It, you know, what are we really gaining here? Maybe we'll, we'll see a more careful empirical design, but, yes, but, yeah. but maybe the setting won't be generalizable. And by the end of the seminar, by the end of reading the paper, you say, actually, maybe she's done it in exactly the right place. It's the place where... If it where, works here. If, if it works if it here, works here, if you boy, work in other places, uh, short time, yeah, kind of... you can work, make it in New York, you can uh, make it You anywhere, can make it anywhere. If you can yeah. make it in the gig economy... <laughs> <laughs> and this is going to work at different kinds of employment. So I think she actually has a lot of advantages from picking this setting, which which is a, a good thing for this paper. And you know, if it works with the short-term kind of on-demand labor, then you could think about the larger effects that might occur uh, in traditional employment. And hey, by the way, Charlie, you know, I mean, I think the gig economy in and of itself is so large that, you know, maybe just even if it was limited to that would still be a pretty important study. But again, you know, putting it together, I see, you know, Caroline Flammer's paper really trying to hit the identification of the causal impact of doing good on doing well. And Vanessa Brabano's paper really trying to target the employee channel by saying, look, you can pay people less and they'll work harder, which which kind of relates very strongly to a channel that would say labor productivity is the link between doing good and doing yeah, well. Yeah. There, there, the, some of the details of her study are interesting in the sense she does, because she's observing these people in great detail, she can separate out in different experiments. In, in early experiments, she find it's really women driving the effect, that usually women charge more uh, than men. And when they're treated, when they're shown this corporate social responsibility information, they back off and they, they aren't charging as much. Similarly, and maybe there's a, a large overlap in these categories, the high performers on Amazon, those who are the most productive, 
seem to be the ones who adjust their expectations the most and actually don't charge quite as much extra for the fact that they're more productive, uh, more productive workers. So it's interesting who this really affects may be some of your best potential employees. That, that's right. And Charlie, this goes to another sort of advice, I think, for young researchers, which is that, you know, you have to, you know, go to battle with the army you have and, and use it well. And so she has a particular setting and particular data that allows her to kind of identify, uh, you know, heterogeneous treatment effects, trying to figure out, you know, where it's strongest. So it's for women, it's for high performing employees. It turns out those cuts of the data are really, really important for generalizability and practical implications. And doing this experiment uh, using MTurk, using kind of online marketplaces and, and the gig economy, she can really basically identify these things more carefully than she would be able to if she had a different kind of data set. So I think she yeah. uses it really nicely to kind of bring out some practical implications uh, in, in this particular paper. However, I, I do want to say both these papers raise my, uh, raise my worries a little bit in the sense that they're both very symbolic studies, these corporate uh, social initiatives that are adopted. It's really just a public vote. There's no guarantee that they're followed through. Similarly, as we said with these experiments, it's really just showing a very brief summary of some goals of the company or a claim that in the past the company has given to nonprofits. I worry that this is very or this makes these social initiatives very open to manipulation. If they can have a big impact just through symbolic action, I worry that you'll see a lot more firms sort of adopting them symbolically, this sort of greenwashing approach where you say all these good things, but underneath you're really not acting in a uh, in a socially positive, pro-social fashion uh, that uh, – that we actually want underneath in companies. Uh, Charlie, so you're, you know, your worry about greenwashing is something that critics of CSR and skeptics of CSR have worried about since the beginning. So people think, look, this corporate social responsibility movement is basically a way for companies to preempt costly regulation. The example here would be, you know, to uh, in, in advance of a particular debate over environmental legislation, companies adopt voluntary standards and then say, hey, no problem here, move on to the next industry. And people have tried to document that in various studies. The other is adopting these symbolic proposals without even implementing it just to kind of wage a PR war to basically convince consumers and other stakeholders that the firm is better than it actually is. And that's why folks really sometimes worry that CSR is kind of displacing traditional regulation and other tools that might actually make more of an impact. And you know, I think you see that in Olga Hahn and Giannis's work in SMJ. What they're trying to do in this nicely titled paper, which is Mind the Gap, huh, is that thinking about the gap between the external side of CSR, the things focused on external stakeholders, communicating targets and goals and so forth with the internal side of CSR, the policies and procedures that actually go on inside the company. And they find a relationship between the size of that gap and, and, and decreased market value, suggesting that you know this difference between words and actions can, can really matter. And it's something I think, Charlie, that we're, you, know, you actually got me on to very early when we were at Duke together talking about this decoupling literature that Ed Zajac and your old mm -hmm. colleague at Illinois, uh, Matthew Kratz, I think it was, ha have worked on. And, and one could think about applying that in this case, um, whether firms are adopting symbolic practices but not really implementing them. Is that, is that kind of the direction you're thinking about? It certainly, and I was going to bring that up just in the context that we shouldn't hold CSR uniquely to account for this. For instance, Ed Zajek just found in these corporate buybacks of shares, you know, a classic finance uh, approach where you say we're going to reduce the amount of capital out there by buying back shares. 
this tends to increase the stock price of your firm. They found that, in fact, lots of firms were getting benefits by this simply by announcing it and never by follow, uh, never then following through. So in in mainstream financial practice, there's this issue, and not surprisingly, there's this potential issue in corporate social responsibility. But but Olga Hahn and and Yanis Yuanu, I, I apologize for my pronunciation of the last name, but but Olga and Yanis, they look at this two sides of CSR. One is the internal implementation, and the other is the external commitments. And by separating out those two, they don't have, they can't have, I think, in this setting quite as fine a causal identification as the other two papers have. But they do show in a correlation sense over time that if firms have been better about their internal practices in the past, then these external commitments to targets and just to measurement and revelation, they get much more boost from that in their market value. Whereas firms that have not been terribly good in their social practices in the past really don't get terribly much benefit from those external commitments. So it does suggest that, that the market is taking to, into account what firms are actually doing. Yeah, you know, Charlie, I think, as you rightly said, you get different things from different papers. And I think, you know, the methodology here mm. is not, you know, experimental, like in Vanessa Bravano's, or, or not necessarily even quasi-experimental in sort of using the regression discontinuity design that Caroline Flammer uses. But I think what's really valuable here is sort of what I took away, at least, is the separation between the external and the internal. And in the, in the appendix, they actually list the components of, of those indices that they built, which I think is really useful for future scholarship and, and important for people to look at. And what I think is cool is, like, you know, CSR, is not unidimensional. It's not like a company has, should just have one score on corporate social responsibility. And I've written a lot with Mike Toffel, David Levine, Rudy Duran, and Samuel Tobel, and others on kind of the validity of these ratings and how these ratings actually don't capture underlying corporate social responsibility as well as we'd want them to. But one sort mm, of takeaway yeah. is definitely that they're not unidimensional. I, I mean, I give this example to my MBA students where I show them um, a blinded example of two kinds of firms. One firm is one, you know, lots of different safety records and donated more money than its industry competitors to charity. The other one uh, has had a CEO who's been sued for harassment several times um, has had, and had several other related scandals. And when I showed them the firms, one is ExxonMobil, the one that's won a bunch of safety awards and donated a lot of money to charity. And the other one's American Apparel, whose CEO has been in trouble, but actually has done lots of innovative stuff on the labor practices side. So it mm. shows you that you know a company like Exxon might have a reputation with CSR related to the industry they're in or the practices they engage in. But on another side, actually be among industry leaders. Similarly, American Apparel is a company that people might think of as responsible for several of their employee relations practices, but actually have some issues in other areas um, of the company. So, some issues. Yeah, so, yeah. so I, without, you know, without getting too, too, too much detail. So I think it's really interesting to think about CSR as a multidimensional concept. And I think you'll see future work, the second wave and the third wave, hopefully, of this work, really honing in on those uh, different dimensions, maybe focusing on employee relations, given that you know, Caroline Flammer and Vanessa Marbano have given us a nice framework to think about the connection between you know employee productivity and and, uh, and performance, maybe people will start to focus on that a little bit more. Yeah, so I'd be curious. You've worked in this area. You work with PhD students. So, what would be your advice for uh, for students going forward if they're going to tackle research in this area? What are some of the really ripe areas that you think that you think people will be heading towards next? So I think that really honing in on the mechanisms is going to be very important. Uh, I think if you can find a new research design and get better on the identification side, there's a lot of benefits to that, as you saw in Caroline Flammer's paper. But at the end of the day, I also think that what people are asking for in strategy is really understanding the mechanisms, the theory of the case. And that's what it's going to take, I think, to write an impactful paper in a lot of the journals that, that we pay attention to as well. So thinking, I think, about one channel, which is you know employee productivity being a 
affected by CSR and then contributing to financial performance is a good start. But I'd love to see that kind of careful mechanism uh, style work on other aspects of CSR related to environment or community engagement or corporate governance. And so those are the kinds of papers I think that are going to make a big impact. And ones that can bring those together and compare the mechanisms side by side within, in studies will also have a tremendous, tremendous, I think, purchase in the field because of you know putting these things together would be a way to bring together all the different research streams. So I think that's one thing. I also think you know the link between financial performance and social performance is one thing, but just understanding how firms differ in the kinds of CSR they do, heterogeneity among the social activities they do, why they choose to focus on the programs they choose, that alone is really interesting. So I think as we get more self-confident uh, as a field in CSR, you'll see, people, you'll see people who are willing to just study CSR on its own rather than linking it to the bottom line, um, as many of the studies we've talked about have done. So I think that's another direction of research that I see um, in the future. I think I think there's two big areas I would point to that I see I see potential for, and that is the the first is more on this implementation side. You know, it is it's interesting to look at these initiatives pushed by or proposed by shareholders about when the company should publicly commit to to certain social goals, but most corporate social initiatives come from the management and the leadership. They're not they're not arising because shareholders are proposing them. They're more organically part of the strategy and, and implementation of the firm. So I'd really like to see studies that have to, that that tackle that and try to take some of the sophistication around around causal identification to really clarify what benefit and what firms are getting from them. So that's one. The other, I have to say, as important as this, you know, do you do good by doing well or vice versa, this sort of connection between social and financial performance, the, if the ultimate mission of corporate social responsibility is social impact, I think we need some studies that look at what is the social impact of corporate social responsibility and how does it vary? Are there certain types of corporate social initiatives that have more social impact independent of the bottom line of the firm? Are they really better, are firms better off when they tackle things that are close to their capabilities their core business model, as you mentioned, that uh, Porter and others have suggested, or are there other approaches? Are, are there certain approaches to working across different countries that really help uh, with the social impact of business? So those are two areas I'd really like to see more in this. Uh, in yes. This. Uh, Charlie, I mean, it's it's really interesting. So if you, if you were advising a doctoral student going who's in, interested in CSR, you know, someone who comes in the first year, and this is very common, as you and I know, and says, I'm interested in this broad mm-hmm. area, where do I start? So, so first, they have to read a little bit, read the papers we've talked about, as well as the classics. But then I think you're really urging folks to move more towards implementation and impact, right? What actually gets implemented yep. in the firm? Yep, How does exactly. that work? And then sort of tying to kind of my my general notion of looking at CSR on its own, looking at the social impact that these initiatives are actually making. Because if they're not making much social impact, even if they're maybe positively related to financial performance, then we, we might question this whole enterprise to, to begin with. I also think what's really interesting is the implementation of these initiatives, and this is something I'm working on now, is often not the companies themselves. They're often working with partners, nonprofits mm. and advocacy groups. So I yes. think we imagine CSR as the company going out and doing something. In actuality, we should be thinking about it more in an alliance or ecosystem kind of model where they're working with other players who actually are much closer to the implementation of the particular social impact. So 
I think that's another thing that I've been thinking a lot about. And I think if I was advising someone, I would kind of push them in the same direction. I also think, you know, teasing out kind of differences internationally. Chris Marquis and, uh, and, and co-authors are doing stuff on CSR in China, which I think is really interesting. The other area mm-hmm. I think is, is kind of hot now is looking at manager effects. So as managers move from firm to firm, how do they affect CSR practices? Brian Hong and Dylan Miner are, have a paper on that and are thinking a lot about that. And then reminiscent of Vanessa Burbano's work, kind of, you know, the, the changing nature of work. A lot of us are going to have many, many kinds of jobs. We're going to be doing gigs in this new economy. And how does social responsibility of our employer really uh, impact our decision to take on different side projects? And of course, you know, white collar and blue collar work more generally. I think there's a lot more to be said about that, with this, which is which kind of employees respond, which Burbano's paper uh, kind of hints at as well, or, or gets at in a nice way, looking at women and high performers. So that's kind of where I, I think of it's going as well. So Charlie, I think we're in for a really exciting ride with maybe what will be the third wave of CSR research. And hopefully some of the insights what these papers have brought out will, will be a great guide for future researchers as well. That's right. These scholars are really, along with along with many others, I have to say, several of my colleagues at Baconi are working on employee relations in corporate social responsibility, implementation of CSR initiatives in multinationals. There really is a lot of interesting uh, interesting work in this uh, in this field. Fantastic. So, uh, Charlie, I think it's the time of the podcast where we where we shift to the I wonder segment, where we uh, stop talking about other people's research, as great as it is, and uh, just pontificate on our not yet research projects, which are of much lower quality <laughs> and less clarity. But but we, we have the podcast, so we're allowed to do it. So, Charlie, do you want to kick off our I wonder segment? Sure, sure. For me, in the end, as I was thinking about this this morning, I ended up staying very close to our topic, and especially my, my suggestion here at the end. I think there, I really wonder how social impact measurement is going to move forward from here. So this is, I'm certainly not the only person wondering this. And there's, there's actually been some work on this, especially in the fields of, of social entrepreneurship rather than large corporations. But there's always tended to be the assumption and strategy that firms that are successful, that lines up with having a fairly positive social impact. That a lot of your success, a lot of your social impact, sorry, just comes through the business, uh, your, the business you deliver, the product you deliver, and you see a profit because of that. But scholars like Joe Mahoney have pointed out there are some places where accounting profits don't really line up with value creation. If there's just transfers between stakeholder groups, if someone comes into a company, takes it over and raids the pension, uh, it adds to the bottom line, but it doesn't really add to the social impact. It's really just transferring from employees to, to owners. I think there's real room to build standards for measuring social impact, and, but it's going to be challenging to do it in different areas. I mean, we think of accounting measures as really solid standard measures, but if you think about what they're called, they're called generally accepted accounting practices. There really was a long period of social development. There's so many judgment calls into where and how you treat costs, where and how you treat revenues. We're going to need the same long, slow process to build social institutions around measuring social impact in firms. And so I really wonder where that's going to take us as as our economies and our and our corporations really evolve. Yeah, Charlie, excellent. And, you know, I think as grad, grad students, junior faculty, senior faculty, we're always trying to come up with questions that are big, big ideas. And I think what you've articulated, mm-hmm. which is sort of on one hand, the Milton Friedman-esque view of, of CSR, which is, you know, the primary responsibility of a company is to make profits. And that's how they're going to make their yeah. social impact. And if you, if you believe economics works in its ideal form, that makes perfect sense. But the, most of us in strategy, we think that their firms are succeeding partly because of market failure. 
failures, we believe they're fairly fundamental, then there's going to be some breakdown in that in that idea. Right. And on the other end, the, the Mahoney work you talk about, and of course, this is playing out in debates over the nature of capitalism in the U.S. and Europe and around the world, which is yeah, that, yeah. you know, if companies might be maximizing profits through shifting things around, let's say transfers between stakeholders, but not actually creating value for the communities uh, in which they inhabit. And maybe, you know, with these tax inversions, you know, moving around the globe in a way that you know, understanding where their community is, is kind of difficult as well. Then, right, then we have a very different problem to, to deal with. And I think scholars, you know, as, as isolated as we might think we are sometimes in the ivory tower, I think a lot of us are impacted by these debates going on in the real world. And I think you'll see a lot of doctoral students kind of targeting this issue to look at as well. You know, pivoting to my I wonder segment. Yeah. yeah. So what are you? Yeah, Charlie, about? it's it's actually very similar because I was influenced as I was preparing for this as well. You know, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, a, a giant asset manager, he just released a letter uh, last week to a bunch of CEOs, basically excoriating them for um, short termism, quarterly capitalism, as it's been called on the campaign trail in the U.S., and saying you know too much of sort of corporate strategy nowadays is oriented towards the short term and not long term value creation. And he was giving them some tangible examples of things like investing in R&D and employees and infrastructure that he thought were really, really important that were currently being neglected. And, you know, this push by a very powerful asset manager might have an impact. On the other hand, I think the forces that are, you know, really focusing CEOs' attentions on these short-term metrics are bigger than um, than any one investor can handle on their own. I'm interested to see where this ends up. You know, a lot of people, both critics of capitalism, but also people within the system are thinking a lot about short-termism. And whether it's it's harming the way that our companies are running, and I've been thinking a lot about you know sort of just maybe doing more qualitative work and talking to companies um, about how strategy is being made today. You know, I think we have this ideal that we teach in strategy class about how companies are formulating strategy, and often to respect the boundaries between different disciplines, we keep finance in one bucket and strategy in another. But if you mm, believe what yep. Fink is saying, you know, finance right and the financial markets are inextricably linked to the way we formulate strategy, maybe even dominating uh, these strategic uh, decisions that we kind of take for granted in our class. So I think another kind of I wonder for me would be wondering about the role between strategy and finance in today's corporation and maybe thinking about whether our models of strategy making and strategy formulation and implementation need to be updated to include finance. That's neat. I think there's some some old classics to draw on there as well because there's sort of certain certain flavors of strategy have been looking at that for a while, but it's it hasn't been mainstream, especially in the center of how strategic decision making happen, happens. Well, I, I wonder that too. I hope I hope someone out there is working on that and will help us all understand it. Mm-hmm. That brings us to the end of our fifth edition of Research Chatter. If you liked it and want to hear more, please subscribe on iTunes and spread the word. Shout it out from your blog, your Twitter, your Facebook. Let people know. Let other scholars know. Let other managers know that this is what we're doing. Our online home is at strategicmanagementsociety.wordpress.com. So that, that first part is all run together with no spaces. There you can find links to all the papers we discuss, plus our contact information, Twitter accounts, and, uh, and room for comments. Right, and let us know what you think right after you subscribe to us via iTunes or some other medium. Uh, send us a note, uh, our emails on our Twitter, um, in the comments on the SMS page. Um, let us know if you have new topics or papers that we should consider. We really love hearing from people who are listening to this, and we've really incorporated a lot of the feedback already. For now, though, thanks for listening, and see you next time on Research Chatter.